Well, good morning, beloved. It is um, certainly a pleasure once again to come before you and open the Word and deliver the ministry of that Word to our hearts and to our souls. If you don't happen to know me, my name is Alan Reeb. I'm one of the elders here, and um, it's just a great, great pleasure to um, open the Word this morning. I invite you to open to Proverbs chapter 9. If you haven't taken one of these study guides which are available downstairs, these are put together before each of our series here at Restoration Road, um, and I would just invite you to pick up one, use it for your personal study or use it for your home group study. Um, there's a series of questions and a, a brief description of each of the, um, the chapters that are covered. It's just a great little tool that we make available to you, um, and so wanted to just make sure you avail yourself to that. Chapter 9 in the book of Proverbs comes at a, a point of transition in the book of Proverbs. If you're a student of the Word, and I hope you are, you will notice that textually, grammatically, thematically, the book of Proverbs changes after chapter 9. The first nine chapters are kind of put together in a poetic type of a way. Um, if you're a linear thinker like me, you have a problem with poetry because poetry is colorful, it is flamboyant, it is full of figures of speech and analogies. I like things straight, <laughs> point A to point B, how do you get there? Um, but circular thinkers love poetry, they love the, the, the floweriness of the language. Um, and the first nine chapters have not failed to deliver on that. But after chapter nine, the book changes a little bit, and it goes into a more of a loosely structured, it isn't a, a, a narrative, as it were. It's more of what we have come to expect the Proverbs to be, short little pithy sayings that have a, a, a good lesson to teach, and then the next verse is something completely different. And so the way that we approach the book of Proverbs is going to change after this week. We're going to do it more thematically instead of expositionally. Um, we've taken each chapter uh, each week as we've come through this book for the last nine weeks. And from here on through the end of the summer, we'll do, do more of a, a topical study. Not because that's what we want to do, but because that's the way that the book of Proverbs is laid out. So we're going to hit a couple of the high point topics and pull together a bunch of different verses from the remainder part of, of the book of Proverbs. So chapter 9 comes along, and it serves as kind of a summary for the first nine chapters. There's going to be some themes that are going to be repeated, and we'll draw your attention to those things. There's going to be some, some words, some, some figures of speech that have been used before, and you'll say, oh, I remember that, that being talked about. Oh, I remember that being mentioned before. Well, Solomon, in his organizational skills, has kind of put this chapter nine here kind of as a, a, a roadblock or a bookend to the first section. And it's there as kind of a summary. He's going to just be, to, he's going to reinforce some things that he really wants to drive home, that he really wants us to pay attention to, that he really wants us to learn and understand before we go on. So that's kind of our format for this morning, is just to look at chapter 9 as a summary, draw our attention to some of those themes that have been talked about. Um, so I'll do an explanation of chapter 9. Um, and then I want to end with a fast forward to the New Testament and bring this study of wisdom 
right up to the New Testament age, up into the church age, and talk about how Jesus, Mike Ope, unlocked the door for us last week when he said, Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And I want to finish this morning by just drawing some beautiful pictures of what that means to us today. So we've entitled this chapter 9, Choose Wisdom, Not Folly. Choose Wisdom, Not Folly. And the chapter is easily broken up into two sections. The first 12 verses and then verses um, 13 through 18 are, is, this, is the second section of this chapter. The first section entitled, The Way of Wisdom, first 12 verses. Solomon, he is bringing our attention to the fact and painting us a picture of the fact that he, wisdom, is offering life. But there's no mention of pleasure. Then comes the woman of folly in the last part of this chapter. She is offering pleasure with no mention of death. There are similarities in their appeal. There's similarities in their offering. There's similarities in the way that they look. But what they deliver is drastically different. First, the way of wisdom, verses 1 through 12. Let's read this section together. Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has set out her young women to call from the highest places in town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat my bread and drink the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Verses 1 through 6. Here's wisdom's generous invitation. I want you to write down three words, either in your notes or in the margin of your Bible for this section to help understand. These three words, provision, partnership, and protection. Provision, partnership, and protection. In a beautiful way, here is the provision that wisdom is offering. She's built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She's slaughtered her beast. She's mixed her wine. She has set her table. And she has sent out maidens to call people to come in. Whoa, there's an appeal. There's a generous offer. I don't have to do anything. I just need to show up. Here it is. The wonderful provision that wisdom offers those who will follow its invitation. But there's also a partnership involved. Come eat my bread and drink the wine that I have mixed. There's a, 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 a friendship offered. There's a partnership, a relationship in this, in this setting. It's just not a fast food restaurant that you show up and grab something and leave. No, the author wants you to come and sit a spell. Learn, listen, participate. This is a partnership. But it's not without added benefit. There's protection. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight, wisdom says. There's protection offered. It's not instantaneous. It's not superfluous, but it's there as a benefit of a life lived following wisdom, gaining insight and understanding and sitting in this place of fellowship, provision, partnership, and protection. Forsake foolishness and live is the appeal. 
what in the world does all this figurative, beautiful, colorful language mean? We've heard some similar themes in previous chapters of the book of Proverbs. Wisdom has been shouted before. It's been proclaimed. It's been broadcast loud and wide. What is the appeal? What, is, what, what do you mean wisdom, wisdom, wisdom? Maybe you're tired of hearing about it week after week after week. What is it? Well, hold, your, hold that thought. We're going to conclude, I think, with some understanding of what Solomon is saying. Here is the generous invitation to come and sit at wisdom's table. There are those, if you pick up numerous commentaries, that will look at some of these figures of speech and go, oh, Solomon has really got some hidden language here. The seven columns, the seven pillars. Well, that must mean dot, 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 dot. I think they might go a little bit too far in some of that interpretation. I think what this simply means is seven, among other things, was just a, an idea of perfection, of completeness. The seven days of creation, God completed things, he finished it, and said it was very good. There's a completed effort in the word seven. So the seven columns, the seven pillars that have made this house, it's the idea that this wisdom is complete, this wisdom is full, this wisdom is perfect. It doesn't need to be added to, it doesn't need to, need to be defended. It can stand on its own. It is complete. And the food that is prepared and the broadcast message to those to come and drink. It's appealing, no? It's alluring, no? It's curious, no? What does he mean? Where is he going with this? What does he want me to do as a, res as a response to this table that has been set before me, figuratively speaking? Where do we go? Well, let's look at the next section. Two responses to wisdom's invitation, verses 7 through 9. Verse 7, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abused, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove, re reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. Two words to write in your notes or in the margin of these two verses, pride and humility. Pride and humility. The scoffer, the wicked, result in abuse, hatred, and injury. Have you ever known anyone like that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I had a grandfather. If you ever mentioned anything that had to do with politics or religion, blood pressure would go up instantaneous. Regardless of the setting, whether it was in his home, in his car, or in a restaurant, he would just become vehement. Regardless of who heard, who participated, who listened, he was a scoffer. You know people like that. They don't respond well to challenges, and given an opportunity, they are ready to give their heartfelt opinions on every subject imaginable. In response to that, the wise love, and you instruct the wise and they become wiser still. Do you know anybody like that? I hope so. I hope there's been people in your life that have 
been able to reveal humility, have helped you understand humility, have been instructed and responded with grace and with love instead of violence or abuse? Two responses to this invitation, pride or humility. The third section in this first part of the book, the beginning and the benefits of wisdom, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. You say, well, that sounds familiar. You're right. Back in chapter 1, verse 7, he starts the whole process of understanding wisdom and following after God's lead by that saying that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is the beginning of understanding, is the beginning of knowledge. He repeats it here. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. G. Campbell Morgan had coined the frame coined the phrase, something well begun is actually half done. We all want to start well. We want to start a project well, but we have to realize that just starting good isn't the finished thing. You'll have to take this by faith, but I've stood on the summit of Mount Rainier 11 times. Each time I reached that summit, whether I said it or thought it, I realized that my hike was only half over because you have all the way to go back down. And any climber of any repute will tell you that more accidents happen on the way down than on the way up, that you are in greater danger going down than going up. It's a good thing to get to the top. That's a wonderful feeling, an amazing feeling, but you're only half done. Starting good with the fear of the Lord is a great, in fact, the only place that we can start this pilgrimage as believers into understanding and knowing God's ways. Fearing the Lord is where we start, but it's not where we finish. It's a good place to start. Several years ago, I was in a used bookstore, and I came across a rather interesting book by Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher. Why I Am Not a Christian caught my attention. I had and still have some apologetic genes in my body. I love the defense of the faith. And so I read this book with great curiosity. What was his problem with Christianity? Why did he oppose it so? Not just in a private setting, but he obviously published a book and gave multiple lectures on why he thought Christianity was wrong. He makes this statement in his book, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision for the end that they were achieving, that his origins, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are all but the outcome of accidental collision of atoms. There's no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought, no feeling that can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. All of the labors of all of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius 
are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. I will never use that for a benediction. And I hope no one said amen when that was over. But what I appreciate about him is his honesty. His honest, he has thought through the issue. If we leave God's wisdom behind, if we fail to fear the Lord and walk in my own wisdom as a scoffer, as a mocker, this is where it leads. Unyielding despair. So the last part of Proverbs 9, the woman, the way of folly, verses 13 through 18. Let's read this section. The woman of folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. That, that's quite a place to leave this section of Proverbs, isn't it? There's a funeral. It's not a feast. It's a funeral. It appears to be a feast. It appears to be something that's inviting because it sounds an awful lot like wisdom's appeal. I've prepared a meal. I'm calling from the highest places in town. I've sent out my maidens. They will appeal to you. Come, come simple, come, come and see, turn in here. But it's not a feast, it's a funeral. There's death here. There's three words to write in your notes or in the margin of your Bible that will help to describe this section of Proverbs. The first one is deception. Deception, then division, then destruction. Deception. Obviously, the appeal is very alluring. The language is almost identical to the appeal of wisdom. It, they're hard to dis discern at this point. They look the same. They sound the same. Their appeal is the same. There's something being offered. I want to come. But it's a deception. She's loud. She's boisterous. She's seductive. But it's a deception. She calls out. She sends maidens. She sends women, young women in the, the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. There's a division. She wants to divide the righteous from the wicked. She wants to divide the naive and the foolish. She wants to create wicked and evil. She wants the righteous to be left behind. And its end is destruction. Stolen water 
is sweet. She says, oh, how good it is to be bad. There's an allure. There's an appeal. Augustine, in his book, Confessions, in his pre-Christian days, talked about his love of going into neighbors' orchards and stealing pears. Not because he was hungry, because he just threw the pears away. But there was an appeal to stealing something. There was a base carnal joy in taking what wasn't his as he analyzed his own soul's condition. Charles Spurgeon said, what the fool eats on earth will be digested in hell. That's a rather poignant way of saying almost the same thing as what Solomon says. There are dead bodies behind this table. Her guests are in the depths of hell. Well, where does that leave us? An appeal for wisdom and an appeal to folly. Dr. Luke records for us a very interesting conversation that Jesus had after his resurrection. He talks about two of Jesus' disciples were on a short day's journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they were walking along the road. And Jesus somehow joined them, and he was somehow cloaked in secrecy. His disciples didn't recognize him, and they walked along, and they were started talking. And Jesus kind of played dumb. Well, why are you so distressed? Why are you so downtrodden? And they said, are you the only one in Jerusalem that is unaware of the events that have taken place here the last few days? Oh, tell me about it, he says. And so they proceed to tell him that Jesus the Christ died and was crucified and buried. And some women say that he's risen from the dead. And Jesus makes a rather remarkable statement. He said, you foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he proceeded to have a little Bible study with them as they walked along. And Luke says, Jesus opened the scriptures to them and started with Moses through the prophets and explained how they revealed the Christ. I am certain that Proverbs was part of that Bible study because there are things in the book of Proverbs that reveal, that show, that explain the coming of the Messiah. That can't be understood unless you understand who Jesus is and why he came. Proverbs, as we have talked about, makes a statement definitively that the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Verse one, chapter 1, verse 7, and then repeated again in chapter 9, verse 10. We define fear of the Lord as a reverence. It's a reverence for God. It's a respect for God. And that's true. I believe that fits the definition of that word. It also includes a terror. It is not wrong to understand the anger of Almighty God. Martin Luther had a tremendous conflict with the book of Romans. 
where it talked about the wrath of God was being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And he was unsettled in his soul because he knew and felt the weight of his sin. If your sin has not been forgiven, the weight of God's wrath is upon you. It is not wrong to understand that the fear of the Lord is respect of God and fear of His anger. But, but God, being rich in mercy, has granted to us the opportunity to have His anger for us placed upon Jesus. The great exchange. We give Jesus our sin, and He takes God's anger for our sin, and that's why He died on the cross. It's not possible to understand and to, under, and to, to start this journey of understanding God's wisdom at the fear of the Lord unless we understand our salvation, unless we accept Jesus as our Savior. He will either pay the penalty for our sin or we will. Jonathan Edwards' most famous, not his only, but his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, I would encourage you to look it up and read it. It's really quite fascinating. He paints a picture of a man walking in this life as it were on a spider web. Thin, thin little strands of strength that could break at any moment. It is very common for many, many people to say, I will take God seriously someday. I will, when I get around to it, take God, you know, before the end comes. We don't know when that will be. We have no idea. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Accept the salvation that God offers today. We don't know what will happen on your way home from church. Today is the day of salvation. Today is to understand that the beginning of a life with God begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that happens when we give him our sin and accept his salvation, the forgiveness of that sin, and stand before the righteous God, holy and blameless in his sight. Another phrase that's repeated in the first nine chapters of Proverbs is that when we pursue wisdom... We will have a long and a full life. Our days will be multiplied and our years will be added. Interesting language again. For God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. Oh, could Solomon have meant that everlasting life, life eternal? is a part of this plan of following God's wisdom and fearing Him and understanding and beginning a relationship with Him? Well, it is. All people are eternal, whether saved or unsaved. Eternity is a part of everyone's future. But for the believer, our life, our days are multiplied. Life is full. 
Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I have come that they, you and I, might have life and might have it in abundance. Paul said in Romans that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of eternal, uh, uh, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternity. Think about eternity. It won't end. Another theme throughout the book of Proverbs so far has displayed wisdom as a feast, most notably in our text this morning, a banquet, but it has been repeated in other chapters in Proverbs. Wisdom is a feast, a banquet. Jesus said in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Some people didn't understand that. What do you mean, eat you? Eat this. No, 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 no. Believe in me. Believe in me. Another theme throughout the book of Proverbs is the place of God's word. Solomon said, don't forget my instructions. Don't forget my commands. He was personifying God's word. Understand and be rooted and grounded in what Almighty God has to say. Jesus came and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In his high priestly prayer, he said, sanctify them, his followers, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. There is a fundamental priority placed upon the word of God and walking in God's wisdom. You cannot absorb it through osmosis. You cannot sleep on your Bible and hope that it gets into your head. It has to come through diligent study of God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable. For what? For correction, for teaching, for training, for equipping in righteousness. That the man of God, the woman of God, will be prepared for every good work. Hebrews 4.12, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. All familiar verses to you. Do we neglect personal study of God's Word? It cannot just be an hour and a half on Sunday morning, brothers and sisters. We need to be diligent students of God's Word to know God's wisdom. Another theme in the book of Proverbs is describing wisdom as an adornment. Something to place around your neck, a garland for your head, a pendant for your heart. Figurative language again, describing wisdom as something to be worn. In Titus, Paul's admonition to a bondservant was to adorn yourself with the doctrine of God our Savior. Wear the doctrine of Christology. This is the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about this in one of our last series. Character qualities of our Savior Jesus Christ are embedded within us because of His Spirit's life within us, and we can display, adorn, we can live, we can wear the garments of God's virtue. We wear. Another important theme in Proverbs is the admonition to seek wisdom more than gold, more than silver more than precious stones. It's a hidden treasure. This was part of Mike's delivery last week, but it's been repeated repetitively. Oh, that's 
oxymoron. Uh, it's happened numerous times in the book of Proverbs. Seek wisdom more than gold. Jesus explains that when he says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first. Here's the first and fundamental priority of my disciples. Seek first the kingdom of God. Yes, there's a partnership that we have with Jesus. King Jesus is our Lord and our Savior, our brother. Um, he, we have a partnership with him. He lives within us. There is a provision that he provides us with salvation, with redemption, with forgiveness of sins, with eternal life. There's protection that he gives us. Our future is secured. We have been adopted as sons. Seek first this kingdom where King Jesus reigns. Proverbs has admonitions aimed at the fool, the naive, the simple, those that lack understanding. Paul clearly explains a problem. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. The God of this world woman of folly has attracted some and blinded some so they cannot see. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that we have the mind of Christ as believers and followers of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Our vision, our understanding, our enlightenment has been freed from the God of this world because of what Christ has been able to give us. You say, well, maybe I'm not one of the elect. I would agree with you that the Reformed doctrine of election is a hard one to understand. Do you want to know if you're one of the elect this morning? Don't look for a tattoo because you're not going to find it. It won't be there. You know how you can tell? Guaranteed if you're one of the elect? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's it. And if you do that, you're one of the elect. You are one of the called. You are one of the chosen. It really isn't that big of a mystery. Don't try to labor it beyond what it's supposed to reveal. Lastly, Proverbs has a theme that Pastor Mike brought to our attention last week. Wisdom says that the one who finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 35. Wisdom says the one who finds me finds life. I think this might have been one of the verses that Jesus told his disciples on the road to Emmaus. You know that verse in Proverbs? Chapter 8, verse 35? Yeah. You find wisdom, you find life. And then he goes on to explain the fact that I am the good shepherd. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's seven columns to build a house on. Seven definitive statements of who Jesus is and why he came and his ministry to us and for us. And how when we follow his lead, we can glorify his heavenly Father. There's a house to be built. There's a feast to partake of. There's a, an enjoyment and a protection and a provision. 
in following who Jesus is. That's the key to understanding the wisdom of Proverbs. Don't try to strain, but follow. Follow Jesus. Follow what He says. Follow His lead. Understand who you are in Christ. The hymn writer said this, Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love abideth ever through eternal years the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus, sweetest comfort of my soul. With my Savior watching o'er me, I can sing through though billows roll. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Let me view his constant smile. Then throughout my pilgrim journey, Light will cheer me all the while. Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross my boast shall be, till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord I see. Oh, the height and depth of mercy. Oh, the length and breadth of love. Oh, the fullness of redemption, pledge of endless life above. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, source of all wisdom and life, we come this morning needy, desperate people, seeking guidance, seeking wisdom, seeking provision, seeking protection. We need to go to that first banquet that has been prepared for us. Thank you for calling us there. Thank you for opening the door. Thank you for preparing that feast. And we understand that that feast is Jesus. He is our Savior, our Lord, our King our brother. He is our redeemer. I pray that this morning we would understand that, we would internalize that, we would accept it, we would live it, we would love it, and glorify you because of it. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.